I have Rayburn Johnson, and we are uh, talking. We've been talking about nonviolence. We've been talking about what does it really mean to follow Jesus in the way of peace. Rayburn has been taking some time to look at capital punishment and the death penalty, and we're going to chat just a little bit about that. But uh, first, I'll, I'll just let you introduce yourself, Mr. Johnson, and tell us tell us what you do and who you are. Absolutely. Well, I am Rayburn Johnson, and um, just a normal, average, regular guy with kind of a crazy story that's all over the place. But um, for the purpose of this interview, um, I'll just tell people that I do a couple of different podcasts. One I do with my, my good friend Steve Sensenig that I've been doing for probably about seven years now, entitled Beyond the Box, where we just talk about uh, life kind of outside the bounds of institutional religion. And then the other podcast, which is a new project that I've started working on over the last few months, is a podcast called The Mundane Revolution. And on that podcast, I'm kind of doing a, a documentary style where we where we take a topic and kind of break it down with uh, just a lot of different a lot of different viewpoints. Um, and so a few months ago, several months back, I started working on an episode um, talking about the death penalty, and it's kind of been the biggest project probably of my life to date. Um, just in researching it and talking to numerous people from all over the spectrum, from people that have been on death row and have later been exonerated wow. to former uh, superintendents that have actually oversaw executions to uh, media witnesses to people all over the spectrum that have had firsthand experience with the death penalty. And it's really been a life changing experience for me. Wow. So as we look at the death penalty, I grew up in a, in a conservative Christian home and the death penalty was the right way to do things. And I, I and I think in that Christian world, for so many Americans, the death penalty and capital punishment has been the Christian way. We hear that there are more Christians who support the death penalty than there are any other groups in the United States. And so what do you see? What's what's the problem? Well, I think a huge part of uh, this kind of shift in understanding for so many of us is that we're realizing that the, the God that we associated capital punishment with looks more like the God of Joshua than the God of Jesus. Hmm. And, um, you know, in the Old Testament, it's very clear that, that people are to, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, you know, that there are certain things that are capital offenses. And the funny thing is we're pretty selective in our society about those. Um, we've narrowed those things down to just a handful of things that we consider uh, you know, grotesquely brutal, but in the Old Testament times, you know, you could be you, you, a capital offense would have just simply been, you know, picking up sticks on the Sabbath or, mm. you know, um, a woman not minding herself during her monthly visitor, you know, so there's all of these different things that we've now narrowed it down. But I know for myself, Jason, and I can really only speak for myself, the shift for me has come as as the topic of your podcast is alluding to, as I've embraced nonviolence, I've started really realizing that this thing is kind of all or nothing. And um, so I started down on, you know, down that path as far as just the death penalty and my response to it being an outflow of my embrace of nonviolence. But since then, I've come across a plethora of reasons 
that that the death penalty is problematic, and some of those have very little to do with anyone believing in nonviolence. Sure, you know, as as I've been talking with different folks about just the broad issue of nonviolence and peacemaking, it seems like um, we might at at first think that the idea of peace is just a piece of the Christian life. It's just, you, you know, maybe a part of it. But I think it seems like as we examine it, it begins to just consume every area of our understanding of God and our theology and overlaps into everything that we thought we knew about living the Christian life. Yeah, um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, can you Can you say a little bit about as we look at Jesus and as we look at the things Jesus taught or the way Jesus lived or maybe ways that you have come to understand Jesus more, how do you how do you see the teaching of Jesus or the life of Jesus or the example or the death and resurrection of Jesus? How do you see that um, bringing us to the idea that capital punishment is something that is not aligned with who Jesus is? Well, you know, I think as myself growing up as a conservative evangelical, the the predominant lens through which we viewed God would have been the Pauline epistles. And so what it ended up doing was minimizing really the life of Jesus to only be this one weekend in one instance of his life, speaking of the death, burial and resurrection. Um, since kind of coming into a new view over the last decade and, and, and reexamining Jesus, I've started realizing that we've largely erased this the rest of his life. It's almost as if the only purpose he came to earth was for this one weekend in his entire yeah. life. Yeah. And so what it causes us to do is it causes us to minimize both the example and the teachings of Jesus. And so when I look at the example of Jesus, you know, there are just numerous situations where under the Jewish law, uh, people had committed capital offenses. And yet Jesus not only did not call for their demise, but he actually called us to forgive them, to embrace them and to fellowship with them. And kind of the, the interesting caveat there, too, is that it's not just fellowship with them once they get clean and straight but fellowship with them in the midst of that sin, that capital offense. Hmm. So I think that, you know, we have the example of Jesus in, in that way. Then we also have the teaching of Jesus, you know, where we're to forgive our brother 70 times seven, you know, with this unlimited, unmerited forgiveness, where Jesus tells us that the way that we'll become sons of our father is by our, our enemy love and by our forgiveness of those who have wronged us, that the thing that actually designates us as his children is that enemy love for he says, you know, the father causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust and he causes his rain to fall on the, on the good and the bad. And he says, you know, in this same way, we're to indiscriminately love. And that's how we prove that we're children of God. Yeah. So I think the example and teachings of Jesus are huge. If we're going to call ourselves Christians or Christians or followers of Jesus or however you want to say it, um, then I think Jesus should play the central role in our lives. I think it's it's really easy for us to, especially if we've grown up in the church, we're so familiar with uh, the stories in the New Testament, so familiar with the Gospels and the story where Jesus uh, forgives the woman caught in adultery and, and 
basically tells her accusers to drop their stones. Mm. Um, we're so familiar with 70 times 7 and love your enemy, but we don't always apply it to maybe the stories we hear today or we, we, we divorce it from the the stories we hear on the news of the kid who shoots his neighbor or mm. or the the man who kidnaps and rapes a child and um how how do you kind of make that connection yeah I th- I, you know that that's actually a great question and probably that is the number one argument for the death penalty is when we begin to look at these horrendous crimes that certain people have committed and think, you know, they're unfit to live, they're unfit for society. And, you know, I I would have a hard time making an argument that they're fit for society in the sense that they should be integrated with the rest of us. I mean, I do think that there is a place for separation, um, you know, where some people have committed things that are so horrible that they need rehabilitation they don't need to be in society for a time um but you know as a follower of jesus more and more i'm realizing that you know my view of god for so many years was that i was a child of god and other christians were were children of god but that that's where it stopped but you know you have paul on the on you know mars hill in athens saying that we're all the children of god quoting one of the uh, heathen poets and actually affirming what he said by saying we're all children of god so if we really take that and we really believe that the image of god is in everyone and we believe that you know jesus what jesus did for us is powerful enough to save to the uttermost then it really becomes a question of is anyone irredeemable and I think that the minute we answer that as a yes in the affirmative, um, then we've really limited the power of God. We've limited God's unconditional love. We've limited God's forgiveness. And we've said that we've found something that's greater than the work of Christ. Yeah. And for me, that's a problematic position to hold while simultaneously saying I'm following Jesus. Do you think there is something there, too, where we um assign someone as as the other and as the person who um is our enemy and the basically as the scapegoat for the problem in society um do you think there's some of that in in the way that we want to look at criminals and Absolutely. If you yeah. if you simply open up a newspaper article or watch a television special that talks about um, a particular murder case and they're talking about the person that they've found guilty and they've been sentenced to die, if you'll just simply look at the pronouns that are assigned to that person or the or the descriptive terms, the adjectives that are used to describe that person as things like monster, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's it's th- you know the, these horrible people. It's always you can never affirm someone's life when you when you refuse to acknowledge their humanity yeah. and i believe it takes us actually dehumanizing them with labels like monster before we can kill them because it, it it's very difficult for anyone um to kill another human being you know I, 
one of the people that I talked to in, in this series, um, Frank Thompson, who was the superintendent for the Oregon State Penitentiary, he actually was responsible for the only two executions in the state of Oregon for the last 50 years. And so he, he did everything from writing the protocol for the death penalty in Oregon because it had not been uh, carried out in decades to actually staying in the room and giving the nod for the poisonous chemicals to start flowing. Um, So he, you know, he's seen it all. And one of the things that we often overlook in discussions of the death penalty is the trauma that those who carry it out experience, Hmm. because not only does it dehumanize that that inmate, that death row prisoner, but it dehumanizes these people who, in the name of the state, are having to carry out the most heinous, premeditated killing that's possible. It, it doesn't get more premeditated than saying you're going to kill someone and, and setting a date and, you know, years, months, decades later carrying it out. Yeah. It doesn't get more premeditated than that. And as I've, spoke, uh, as I've spoken to these people, they've just told me these horrible stories of the trauma that they've had to go through, the post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, Frank mentioned how several of the people that that he had on staff have really experienced hard times. I, I know one gentleman, Ron McAndrews in Florida, who was um, responsible for several of the executions in the state of Florida. He talks about death row prisoners coming to his bed at night. And sitting on the foot of his bed. I mean, just horrible, horrible things. You can't kill another human being, no, mm. no matter how grisly you deem their actions to be, and it and it leave you unaffected. That that is amazing because I, I think, in just a broad sense, when we talk about nonviolence, whether we're talking about war, or whether we're talking about the violence in our own neighborhoods, or talking about the death penalty. In, in every occasion that we want to resort to violence, it seems that we're required to dehumanize in mm-hmm. some way. And, yeah, yeah. And it's impossible not to. I mean, perfect example, and this is totally off, off of the death penalty, but, you know, there was a battle during World War One that happened uh, over Christmas Eve, and the German forces and the Allied forces were in separate separate sections of the battlefield with a trench in between them. And... On Christmas Eve, the fighting stopped temporarily, and they began to sing Silent Night in German, and all of a sudden the Allied forces began to sing Silent Night, and then they all came out of their trenches and had a Christmas Day truce Mm -hmm. and began to exchange gifts and talk to each other. Well, the next day they found that when they had to resume the battle, the commanders and generals, the people in charge of the battle, were having a hard time getting anyone to fire at anyone else. Because they had met the other, and they had yeah. realized the other is just like me. Yeah. I think of, um, I'm part of a Mennonite church, and I haven't traditionally always been, but I'm, I'm learning more about Mennonites and history. And and um, our, our pastor's wife was telling me a story actually about her father who was on a farm, and um, somebody was stealing grain at night from the barn and and no one knew who and he decided he was going to find out who this was and so he sat up and he watched and then he saw finally someone who was who was sneaking up and loading up a bunch of grain and he went out to the barn and he scared the guy and he said what are you doing and then he said 
how about I help you? And he started to help the guy load up a bunch of the grain, mm. and mm. then he took off, and he never came back and stole any again. But, wow. you know, it's so easy to be able to, to say, oh, uh, we're going we're gonna to prosecute this guy. We're going to make them the enemy. We're going to make an example. But to say, you are a human being, and you probably need whatever you're stealing. And, well, um, and the thing is, Jason, when you look at people on death row, I mean, what you're saying is such a perfect example because what I hear over and over again are that the people that are on death row, you know, for the most part, they don't have the average American middle class upbringing. Sure. You know, these are people that have been in and out of foster care. They've had multiple stepfathers come into their lives. They've been sexually abused. They've been physically abused. They've been verbally abused. Many of them, you know, have been homeless. Um, so, you know, for us to just simply look at their actions in a vacuum and think that we can assess the, the entirety of their life by what they did in a single moment in time, that we can ascribe a value to their life that only takes into account maybe an hour in the entirety of their life. To me, it's just you have to completely glaze over someone's humanity to do that. Yeah. Do you have any – can you talk a little bit about um, any of these folks who you've talked to who are on death row or kind of yeah, part you know, of the story? One, one of the uh, one of the stories that just absolutely blew my mind is a man by the name of Ray Crone, who has the distinction, um, the dubious distinction of being the 100th death row exoneree in the United States. Um, they actually, when this man was released from death row, they actually uh, lit the lights in the Colosseum in Rome. It was such a celebration. Mm. Um, but anyway, this gentleman. He was a retired he, – he, he had been in the U.S. Air Force. Um, he had left the Air Force, eventually started a job with the U.S. Post Office. He had never been arrested. He was just an average American guy. And he one day finds himself being questioned for the murder of someone that he had just a really passing relationship with. It was a bartender at a bar that he used to shoot darts at. And um, on New Year's Eve, he suddenly finds himself being arrested for that murder. Um, and it was all on something, uh, a mark that they found on the body. They used something called bite mark evidence um, to to say that he was guilty. And so he gets a public defender, just to give you an idea of the disparity there. He's, he's given $5,000. His public defender is given $5,000 to defend him in a capital case. This man had never defended a murder case before. Mm. Um, just Just by way of comparison – the bite mark e expert that the prosecution hired, they paid him $50,000 for his services alone. So you can see the disparity there. Well, anyway, he ends up getting uh, getting convicted of first-degree murder and sexual assault. Um, he gets sent to death row. He's in absolute shock because he's innocent. He doesn't – he has no idea what's going on. He trusted the system. He just assumed, you know, there's no way I can be convicted for something I didn't do. And so he goes to death row. He spends about three years on death row. He has an appeal. In the appeals process, his family actually uh, takes out loans. They cash in retirement. Um, people hold raffles for him, and they raise thousands and thousands of dollars to hire a really uh, experienced defender who actually donates a lot of his services to Ray. And so Ray goes back to trial, and they just pick the, the prosecution's case apart point by point. I mean, it's just blatantly obvious that he's innocent. 
Once again, the jury returns with a guilty verdict. And the judge is actually crying. He's choking up. The jurors are actually even crying. And they say, okay, well, this time we're not going to give you the death penalty, but you, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get 60 years to life. So, you know, they, they removed the sexual assault piece from it, but they still, uh, convict him of the murder, even though most of them don't believe he did it. And so this man, who was just an innocent postal worker, ends up spending three years on death row. Then he goes to a maximum security prison for another seven years where he experiences gang violence. He's he's witness to riots. I mean, the whole, the whole caricature that you can imagine of maximum security prison life. Yeah. And then 10 years later, he's finally released when the state of Arizona passes some new legislation that allows DNA evidence that had not previously been tested to be admissible, admissible in a court of law. So they go back and try some of the and test some of the DNA evidence, and they come back and find that not only did it not match Ray, but it matched a man who was only a mile away from the bar at that time, living with his mother, who had just been let out of prison a few months before, went back to prison a few months after, and was actually in prison serving a 10-year jail sentence for sexual assault. So they find DNA that matches him, and Ray Crone gets out 10 years, 10 years of his life lost. I think he was 34, um, 33 or 34 when they arrested him for this crime. So to me, even if you throw out the whole piece of nonviolence, even if you get rid of the fact that the death penalty is astronomically more expensive than life uh, life sentences, you know, even if you get rid of you know our pro life stance, all of these different things, just the fact that there are over 150 exonerees from the U.S. death row since 1976, even if there were only one, to me that would be enough to say. We completely have to rethink this death penalty mm. when there is a chance and not only a chance, but there's actually cases recently. I mean, we're, we're not talking in the distant past. There's actually been cases where people have been put to death and then later exonerated by DNA evidence. Claude Jones, a, a man in the state of Texas, they used hair analysis to say that that he was guilty and he ended up uh, getting sentenced to die. A few years later, they dig back into his case. They test some new hair samples uh, when they have really some some better technology and find out that there's no way it could match him. So completely innocent man. And this is just one story among many. Even if we remove every other factor, Jason, just the fact that not only is there a chance that we could execute someone innocently, but that we actually have, to me, tells us it's a broken system. Yeah. Some of that makes me also think about what, how we view the death penalty as a society at large. And, and do you have any thoughts just kind of about the politics of it? And, and you know, it, it makes me think that do we sometimes and, and do leaders and politicians almost feel like as a society you need the death penalty in order to maintain some peace, like, like the short story The Lottery or... The Hunger Games, or something like that, where yeah. we we have to execute somebody once in a while just to keep the peace. You know, uh, it's interesting because you hear that out of the mouths of so many politicians. They they want to appear to be tough on crime because it reads good in the polls. Mm-hmm. Um, so we hear that a lot. But at the end of the day, when you actually research the statistics, if you look at the facts. 
states that don't have the death penalty are, are no more likely to have a higher murder rate than states that do. Um, so it's a totally a bogus claim to say that the death penalty is a deterrent against crime. It, it's just not. It's just flat not. Um, but not only that, when you're talking about the politics of it, what's so fascinating is if you go state by state and you actually look at the implementation of the death penalty in that state, you'll find that normally it's um, it's very demographically oriented. There's only not, – not only is it targeting minorities and the poor – but if you look at the statistics of uh, where in the state, like, for instance, in the state that I live in, Tennessee, if you look at the, uh, you know, our death row is housed in, right outside of Nashville, Tennessee, you would assume that there are some representatives on death row from a cross-section of the entire state of Tennessee. But from my understanding, it's really only about two or three counties um, because there's two or three counties that are known to give out death sentences. And then the rest of the counties just aren't. And so much of that has to do with the demographics of that county. Um, another thing you'll find over and over, no matter where you go, is that black-on-black uh, -black crime is rarely considered worthy of the death penalty. Or white-on-black crime is rarely considered worthy of the death penalty. The, the predominant number of cases where a death sentence is handed out, from my understanding, is where a black person has has, e has either murdered or been suspected of murdering a white person. Um, those are just the stats. Now, we like to think that racism doesn't play a part in those kinds of decisions, and I'm not saying that it always does, but I'm saying that statistically, when you know a small – when you have literally a minority of the population – black people being a minority of the U.S. population, when you have them making up half of the death row or more in many cases, uh, to me it says that there's a real problem in the in the carrying out of the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the last part place I'd like to go is, is looking at what does this, what does our acceptance of the death penalty and our continuation of embracing capital punishment in the United States, what does it, how does that affect our view of God? And not just in, um, I, I think it likely goes both ways, like so many issues of peace and nonviolence. How does, how is our understanding of God affected by um, this embrace of violence and how does our under, does our view and understanding of God affect the position that we think we're supposed to have? You know, I, I absolutely think that what we believe about God affects everything in our lives. It's I, I believe it's the filter through which we view and we live our lives, and the, and the filter through which we view and interact with other people. I think it was Voltaire who once said that. Uh, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and then man returned the favor. Um, yeah. You know, what we believe about God ultimately trickles down into our politics because, you know, our politics are just the outgrowth of what we believe about human society. So I think the death penalty is a perfect example. You know, in the state that I live in, in Tennessee, recently, I think it was just last year, they reinstituted the electric chair as uh, as a as a viable way to execute people, um, you know, with I, I don't 
I don't know if a lot of the listeners out there will realize, but there's been a huge debate um, over the last year and a half or so about the drugs that are used in the implementation of the death penalty, Um, especially with the Clayton Lockett case in Oklahoma, a man that took about 40 minutes to die and he writhed in agony as the as the chemicals were coursing through his veins. Europeans have basically quit selling the pharmaceuticals that were used for the death penalty to U.S. states that have the death penalty. So they're kind of scrambling to find other ways to kill people. And to me, what it shows is there's a desperation on the part of states like Tennessee, where they reinstitute the electric chair, or Utah, where they reinstitute the firing squad. There's a desperation that's kind of trying to scramble to to put a Band-Aid on something that we all realize is broken. And I think at the end of the day, so much of it comes down to fear. Um, you know, it, it, it's a thing of when you fear something, you want it as far away from you as possible, and there's nothing further away than annihilation. So I, I think that's part of it. I think a lot of it comes from our retributive view of God, believing that, you know, God is the ultimate judge who in the end, by judgment, he will completely either annihilate or eternally torment his enemies. And the minute you begin to deconstruct those things and realize, wait a minute, God's really not like that. God's like Jesus, and Jesus forgives his enemies, and Jesus you know, loves his enemies as much as his friends and, and encourages us to do the same. When you begin doing that, it really deconstructs any support that you can have for any kind of policy that hurts people, and that and that tells us that that person's irredeemable. And I mean, when you look at the death penalty, you look at all these innocent people who, you know, over 150 that have been exonerated on U.S. death row, and you realize at any given time we could have killed any of those 150 people. Not only is that a travesty of justice, but that's imagine if we had later on found out that they were innocent. Not only are we saying they're irredeemable. But we're saying that our knowledge is exhaustive of their innocence or guilt. And so I I think in many ways, um, you know, the death penalty is just it's an outgrowth. You said it earlier at growing up in a conservative um, fundamentalist environment. The death penalty is an outgrowth of that very environment, I believe. Um, It's an outgrowth of that environment that says that that God's primary uh, distinction should be seen as judge and not as father. And uh, when we believe that, we end up with hurtful policies that not only end up hurting people, um, but end up really costing us all a whole lot more money, a whole lot more grief. I mean, you you take the you take the victims and their family members. You know, we think that the death penalty somehow gives them this sense of justice, but at the end of the day, that justice is is delayed because. You know, with all of the appeals that have to accompany a sentence of death just by virtue of the fact that you don't want to get it wrong, you're looking at dragging on a case for years. And these victims, family members, having to go in and out of court proceedings for years and never getting closure. So it's just not good for anybody. Yeah. Do you see Do you see us moving in the right direction? I do. You know, uh, recently Nebraska just repealed the death penalty, which is truly unbelievable because Nebraska is a very conservative state. Um, you know, we're seeing several states recently that have overturned the death penalty. And some of them, honestly, it's just it's just because of the 
because it's physically responsible to do so. You know, since 2008, when we had the economic downturn, there's there's states that just can no longer afford the death penalty. You know, California was on the on the uh, brink of bankruptcy not that long ago. And the death penalty, if they got rid of the death penalty, it could actually save them a billion dollars over five years just simply to replace the death penalty with life imprisonment. California taxpayers are actually paying $90,000 more per death row prisoner each year than on prisoners that are in regular confinement. I mean, you know, I, I think that for all sorts of reasons, some of which being the revelation, I be, the continuing revelation, I believe that that love is the answer. That love is that God is love, and therefore, love is the stuff that we're supposed to be made of. Um, I believe that yes, that's part of it, but just all the way around, I think people are seeing that the death penalty is broken, and it's time to quit putting band aids on it, and it's time to just put it to death. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's exciting. I think that. Um to a lot of times in the world of Christianity, we've had a pessimistic view of the world where we kind of think we're headed, we're headed toward hell. Um, society's headed downward, but, um, I think it's much more in line with what Jesus had to tell us and to, to see that the world is going in the right direction, not always in small ways, but the, you know, it's that must it's that mustard seed parable, Jason. You know, it's like it's like Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's planted in the garden. It's the most insignificant of all the seeds. But you give that thing time and it actually takes over the garden. And so that it not only provides sustenance for people, but it even provides shade and you know, homes for birds he uses in the in the parable. So it's this thing where the kingdom of God, little by little over time, it takes over, and I think that's. I think we're seeing that. I think we've got a long way to go. We have got a lot yeah. of work to do. I mean, in the state of Texas, this week they're set to execute two people. Um, so you know, there there's definitely work to be done. But you know, we're not where we need to be. But thank God, we're not where we were just a few years ago. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rayburn. Thank you for talking about all of this and for the work you've done. We'll be looking forward to the uh, the soon to be released show dealing with all this these issues um if folks want to hear more want to be looking forward to that where can they look where can they find you well thanks jason i just really appreciate you having me on um if folks want to connect with what i'm doing they can go to the mundane or just mundane that's where the podcast is going to be where we're going to talk about the death penalty hoping to have that up within the next week and um, they can also visit beyondtheboxpodcast.com if they want to hear some conversations about life outside of the bounds of institutional religion. I just really appreciate you taking the time to have me on today. Appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you very much.